Here in John 12, I'd like to start off uh, verse 37 down to 41. Though he'd done so many miracles, verse 37, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. And now he's quoting from the well-known suffering servant prophecy of the crucifixion in Isaiah 52 and 53. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah had said again, and now he's quoting from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, and spake of him. This is talking about the glory of the crucified Lord Jesus. He puts Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 together. And he says that this is talking about the glory of the crucified Son of God. Isaiah 53 we're familiar with, that talks about Jesus. But let's go back to Isaiah 6, because we may not have uh, quite perceived that that is talking about Jesus. So, Isaiah 6, and uh, the, the verse that he's quoted is verse 10, of Isaiah 6, make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy, lest they should see with their eyes, etc. But the glory which is applied to Jesus on the cross is the vision from verse 1 onwards. Verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And verse 3, there's the voice that says the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this is being applied to the crucifixion by Jesus in John 12. And yet when we read that the Lord is high and lifted up, verse 6, this is exactly the language of the servant's song in Isaiah 52:53 that talks about Jesus on the cross. Uh, Isaiah 52:13, where that song begins, My servant shall be exalted and extolled and be made very high and be lifted up. And here in Isaiah 6 he sees the Lord... And I think the idea is, this is in a sense the Lord Jesus, high and lifted up. And that is interpreted, that the lifted up in Isaiah 52:13 and in John 12, as lifted up on the cross. And looking at this uh, in a bit more detail, verse 4, the posts of the door, and I take this of being of, of the most holy place, are, are shaken. And the house is filled with smoke. This is Matthew 27:51. The, the veil of the temple was was rent when Jesus died. So then Isaiah sees this, and he's convicted by that vision of his own sinfulness. Verse five: Woe is me! I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Verse six: But then, out of that same vision that has convicted him of his sin, there flies one of the seraphim having a live coal in his hand and he puts it upon his mouth and says this has touched your lips verse 7 your iniquity is taken away your sin purged that's very much the language of the crucifixion the effect uh, of the atonement of the Lord and then he hears a voice that says who's going to go and the idea is go and preach to Israel and he says well here am I send me this is the very man who just a moment before has said woe is me I'm a sinner. I'm convicted. And so this is how the cross of Jesus, if you like, works. That we are convicted of our sin, and yet out of that same uh, vision of, of the Lord there high and lifted up, 
we also find our forgiveness to the point that we in practice respond to the Lord's call. Who's going to go? Who's going to go and do my work? Alright, here am I, send me. And you can imagine the, the tone of voice in which Isaiah said that. You know, it would have been uh, very quietly, I think. He's just been convicted of feeling that I really should die. And yet he believes that he's been forgiven. That same vision, out of that same vision, comes the message of his cleansing. So then, notice also that the Lord Jesus, at the nadir, as it were, of his uh, human life, when he's naked and shamed and mocked and everyone's saying, well, he's not going to get out of this one, no smart miracle, he's there dying on a cross, that was actually his glory. Now, that applies so many times in human life. Take an extreme case. Uh, an older man lying there, dying of cancer, rejected by his wife and his family and his church, alone, reading his Bible, praying to, to his Lord, good conscience, God is thrilled with him, uh, angels preparing, as it were, for the, the brothers falling asleep in Christ, although nobody notices. And there he is, shuffling around his room, problems going to the toilet, what can I eat? What can I drink? I can't go to the shops. I don't have any money. Nobody calls me. You know, that old man, that brother, is dying in glory in God's eyes. And so it, it may be with so many situations that we find ourselves in that actually that is the glory of the Lord being worked out in human uh, human lowness. <clears throat> you have this in Philippians 2 very clearly, that Jesus goes through in Philippians 2 in that hymn there, seven stages of humiliation and seven stages therefore of exaltation, or seven, let's say, aspects of humiliation and seven aspects of glorification. That's what's going on in our lives. And this is the conviction that comes out of the cross of Jesus before which we sit or stand now as we break bread. So then, this is the effect that our, our interaction with him there causes. This conviction of sin, this sense of him in utter glory there, that perfect mind inside that battered body covered in, in blood and spittle, that that was the glory of God. This is how God works. I mean, Isaiah 6 couldn't be more exalted in terms of the, the language of glory that it uses. And so, woe is me for I'm undone. That is, in one sense, our response. But like with any process, you can't get caught up on one stage of it. It's a bit like grieving for someone you've lost. You can't get caught up, or you shouldn't get caught up, on, on one, one stage of the process. You, it's got to go through to the end. And of course not everyone makes that, they get caught up on stages of the process, and so it is, I think, with the message of the cross, that some people get caught up on this woe is me business, uh, and that, that's necessary. Some people unfortunately leapfrog that one and don't pay enough attention to it, uh, and therefore they do not get that conviction of sin, and therefore they don't have the motivation, therefore, to believe in the forgiveness that comes out of the same vision, and therefore they are not quick to respond to the call who is there 
who shall I send? Here am I, send me. This idea of responding to forgiveness, in fact, is, is a theme here earlier on in, in John 12, if we go back to, uh, to, to John 12, because you've got there Mary, verse 3, who brings this very precious ointment and anoints the feet of Jesus. And you feel there a sense of absolute abandon, that everyone thinks she's being silly and stupid and unwise, and Judas says, and in fact the other records say they all said, why was not this ointment sold, this is verse 5, and given to the poor? And Jesus says, no, she did this because she perceives that I'm dying, and she did this anointing my body for burial. And because she realizes, verse 8, that me you do not have always with you. So then, she did this because she was motivated by a sense, I believe, of her forgiveness. Of course, the incident is very similar to that in Luke 7, where the woman in the city who is a sinner, who is not named, does pretty well the same. And I think uh, the similarities are so great that we are to assume that Mary, as in Martha and Mary, that that Mary was that woman in the city who, who was a sinner. And I think that's why Martha sort of... Uh, tut-tuts and clears her throat when Jesus is talking to Mary alone and Mary wants to be with Jesus rather than her doing the housework. She's like, Mary, you know, like you're the fallen woman in this family and here you are hanging out with a bloke again on your own. Find your place in the kitchen, woman. Uh, that sort of, to me, has uh, more sting to it if in fact Mary was that fallen woman of Luke 7. Whatever, she did this because she perceived that he was going to die. And so she has this abandon of generosity, which in the eyes of more clinical analysis was foolish and wasteful and all the rest of it, that she, she spent her fortune, the family fortune, simply on anointing the Lord. Because she believed. This is how much she paid for believing that Jesus was not just Jesus, but Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. If he's the Anointed One, I therefore should anoint him, no matter what it costs me. And when Jesus says in John 12, verse 7, let her alone, I don't think he just means leave off her, let her be, because that Greek uh, phrase, to let alone or to let go, it's usually translated to forgive. That's really what the Greek word and one of the Hebrew words for forgiveness means, to, to let go. And Jesus is saying, look, let her be forgiven. She's doing this, and you're mocking her, and you're having a go at her. But look, let her be forgiven. If he wanted to say, leave off her, he could have, I think, worded it differently. But he uses this word for forgiveness. And he says, look, let, let her go off. Let her be forgiven because this is what she's doing, because she's been forgiven. And this incident is alluded to a number of times in the later New Testament. Uh, just one example, when Peter says that to us who believe, he is precious. That's First of Peter 2.7. Same word that you've got here in John 12, verse 3. Very costly, very precious ointment that she uses. We're being asked by Peter in 1 Peter 2.7, I think, to be like her, to perceive his preciousness and to, to feel that abandon of, I want to give myself and everything that I have for him. 
And I wonder if we have felt that. And if we haven't, I think it's because we have not been convicted of our own sin. I mean, th this is coming back to Isaiah, woe is me for I'm undone, wow, I've been forgiven, okay, who is there to go? Well, here am I, if I'm any use, send, send me, and so the Lord does. Now, just in passing, note how God, well, sorry, how Jesus worked with the family in Bethany. It's in verse 57 of John 11, the Pharisees are given a commandment that if any man knew where Jesus was, he should show it, that they might take him. And that the significance of the RV in verse 1 of chapter 12 is that it says, Therefore, Jesus therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, and he stays in their house for the week before his death. Therefore, well where's the therefore linking back to? It's linking back to chapter 11 verse 57. He knew that they were looking for him and that uh, there was a search on for him, and so he quite publicly stays with the family. And verse 9 of chapter 12 says, Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And the Jews wanted to kill, verse 10, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Um, but that's why Jesus was there. And I, I think he works in human life in this way to kind of help us to sort of come out for him. You see a classic case in Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night. And then in John 7 he, he sort of tries to put a little word in for the Lord by saying, Well, does our Lord judge anyone until we've heard him? Being one of them, it says in John 7. Um, as if to say, well, uh, you know, he was still one of them, still not coming out openly. And uh, then the, the tragedy that they all, all on the Sanhedrin, including Joseph of Arimathea and including Nicodemus, they all condemned him to be worthy of death, and that includes Nicodemus. But then, confronted by the reality of the crucifixion, he comes out. And this is how God works, I think, in our lives, so that we cannot be secret believers, because a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And if you hide your light under a bucket, your light will go out. And so, whatever our problem is, feeling that we're not very good witnesses to Jesus, or which is just another way of not trusting enough in his acceptance of us, shyness, or, or whatever it is that holds us back from being upfront witnesses to him, he actually works in human life to help you to, uh, to come out, I, I think. Now, why did they want to kill Lazarus? Verse 10. Well, it says, verse 11, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away. And I think that phrase, went away, implies they stopped uh, really going to the uh, synagogue or to the temple. And it, it all came down to money, because they weren't going to pay their, their tithe or their temple tax or whatever it was, their, their religious taxes any longer, because they'd gone away. So it all comes down in that sense to money. And oddly enough, this is a theme in the crucifixion records and the lead up to it. I think one of the things that really riled Judas, and I think led him into the betrayal, was this waste of the money, the, of the ointment, verse 5 and 6. Why wasn't this sold for 300 pence instead of just poured out? You know, it's like nearly a, a year's wages. And he said this 
because he was a thief and he carried the bag and he wanted to take bits and pieces out of it for himself now you also have got the whole thing when Judas comes to the Jews and says what will you give me and I will betray him and I know there's various theories about why Judas betrayed Jesus but I would say that the record implies, believe it or not, that it was largely a financial one. You know, what will you give me? And I'll betray him. And that's why he throws the pieces of silver down in the temple, thinking, well, I betrayed the innocent, the ultimately innocent blood, and all I could do, all it could buy was a field, nothing more. That's all it was. It wasn't a huge sum of money. And you see the same theme of petty materialism, really, I think, in the way that at the foot of the cross there that the soldiers are arguing about who's going to have the coat that was really quite a nice coat and who's going to have the uh, the the sandals and obviously you don't want one sandal you want you want the pair and all this kind of thing it's just incredible how short-termist people are and there are people who will not be in God's kingdom according to what we we have implied in scripture there's people who won't be in God's kingdom because they were caught up with getting wealthy, or trying to get wealthy, in this life. It's unbelievable that Judas could have done it for money. But he did. And there's others who do the same. I'm too busy. And why are people too busy? Because they're busy with their study and with their uh, career development. And then when they have got a bit of money, they're busy enjoying it. And they betray Jesus because of that that just becomes a part of their life it eventually becomes a part of their life that used to be important and it's now no longer we've all seen this happen time and time again people are so fickle we are so fickle we're so short-termist people make the most incredibly idiotic decisions just for the sake of a short-term benefit and you read about it on the on the media, and you think, wow, how could it be that somebody was so stupid? But, you know, people are. We are. And the only way I think that we will not be like that is sensing, as Isaiah did, the seriousness of human sin, the depth of his forgiveness, and the wonder of the fact that we have been both convicted and forgiven. Paul in Romans puts it another way. He says, you're standing in the dock there, You've got your own sin witnessing against you. You are condemned. But then because you are in Christ, you are counted as if you are Jesus, and you're not just let off. You are actually justified. You are declared right. Because all that is true of him becomes true of you. I think you see again the fickleness of the crowd and the people, really, from verse uh, 13 onwards here, where <clears throat> the, the crowd shout out uh, Hosanna and all that, they're so enthusiastic but then it's the same crowd who shout out Hosanna uh, sorry, who shout out crucify him later on <clears throat> the, the point's been made or it's been tried to be made that oh, these must be two different crowds one from Galilee, one from Jerusalem but I don't think so because I think that uh, there in John 12:13, when they uh, go forth and meet him and say, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. I think we're supposed to uh, connect that with John 19, verses 14 and 15, where 
And Pilate says, Behold your king, but they cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? They said, We have no king but Caesar. Uh, the, the reference to king, the reference to them shouting out, etc., it, it implies to me that the, uh, the rubric is so similar, and, and it's all within John, I think John is making uh, a connection there, as if to say, look, it's the same crowd. This is the fickleness of people, and we know ourselves. We can be here in the presence of the cross of Jesus, and Sunday afternoon go out and do terrible things, or say, or think terrible things, more to the point. Now, they welcomed him into Jerusalem there in John 12:13 with palm fronds, which was a real symbol of Jewish nationalism. And Hosanna really means save now. They wanted immediate salvation. And they had this image of Jesus in their heads that he was going to come, and, uh, or image of Messiah, he's going to come and save them from the Romans, etc. But instead, Jesus alludes to the prophecy of Zechariah 9 verse 9 that Israel's king would come to them humble and riding upon a donkey verses 14 and 15 this is not the war horse which they expected Messiah to come riding he comes riding a donkey this is like a, a president elect not turning up in a Mercedes to the inauguration ceremony but um, come in driving a, a battered beat up uh, Lada or, or or whatever, it's like 20 years old and keeps backfiring and uh, it, it, you know, the, the idea of a humble king was a, was a paradox to them and of course going on there in Zechariah 9 it says that he comes Israel's king comes sitting humble and on a donkey to proclaim peace to the Gentiles not bloodlust against the Romans who are Gentiles uh, and uh, with a worldwide dominion Zechariah 9 goes on, not just in Palestine. No wonder then they get very angry with him, verse 34, when they say, What do you mean that the Son of Man has got to be lifted up, got to be crucified? Who is this Son of Man? Or <clears throat> what kind of a Son of Man is this? They obviously understood Son of Man in terms of uh, Daniel 7 as being uh, Messiah. But why do they turn against him? Because he didn't fit their image of him. The problem is, as Maxim Gorky uh, put it, is uh, a Russian atheist, that there is a God, but man has created God after his own image and after his own likeness. And sadly, horrible words as they are, they're, they're kind of true for a lot of people. That people have an image of who they would like Jesus to be. And if he's not like that, you know, if he doesn't give them uh, wealth and prosperity in this world uh, they can turn very strongly against him we are to accept Jesus for how he is presented in the Gospels and not to try to turn him into who we would like him to be that is my point you see that in uh, counselling people who have run into marital problems early on in their marriage I'm not a professional counsellor I but I do counsel people just because there's um, <clears throat> they want, uh, no one else on the premises uh, in a lot of the uh, situations I'm in and uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of those problems arise from the fact that 
uh, in courtship or maybe before they even met each other, they had developed very set ideas and images and hopes and expectations about what their partner was going to be like. And when reality is somewhat different, when the partner, the destiny and God in that sense is sort of dished up for you, doesn't quite work out like that. I'm not talking about abusiveness, I'm just talking about difference of between reality and expectation. There's a lot of anger. And this is why you can counsel two people who separately are such nice people. And you want to get together, I mean, goodness, there's so much anger. You think, how could two such very nice people be so angry with each other, when they're apparently so nice in many other aspects of human life? And I, I think it's this, uh, this problem between reality and expectation and dashed expectation. And this is, I think, the classic case. This is what led the crowds to turn against Jesus. To one minute be waving palm fronds, right, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, save us now, Hosanna. And then, who is this for a son of man? Who is this for a Messiah? No thanks, what do you mean? He's got to be crucified. Uh, we don't want him. Let's kill him, even. And yet, Jesus is effectively the crucified Jesus. The message of the cross and that we must suffer in this life, really suffer, and pick up his cross and walk after him. This is his message, and we cannot blunt it, we cannot dilute it. It is as it is, that we share in his cross, that we might share in his resurrection. That's why in verse 21, uh, when these Greeks or Gentiles come, 20 and 21, they, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip uh, scoots off and tells Andrew, and, and they come and say to Jesus, hey, you know, there's some Gentiles who've said we want to see Jesus. And Jesus never actually responds to that. He doesn't say, okay, I'll tell them I'm, I'm coming, I'll meet them around the corner in five minutes. He appears not to respond, but what he, what he says, basically, is, I'm going to die. You want to see Jesus? You want to see me? Yeah, you don't need to meet me around the corner and have a coffee with me face to face for five minutes to see me. I'm going to die, and that is me. It's me to the Gentiles, it's me to you, the Jews. And just one final point. He talks in that context, of verse 24, about how the corn of wheat, that's him, falls into the ground and dies, and it abides alone. It dies, and it brings forth much fruit. Now, his death was therefore extremely lonely. I do not see any other function for that apparently throwaway comment in verse 24 that the corn of wheat that falls into the ground abides alone initially, and then it springs up and brings forth much fruit. I think that is really a note to self that the crucifixion was the ultimately lonely experience. Not only was he forsaken, but even those who did kind of stay with him a bit, uh, they had no real handle on what he was going through. If we are to share in his cross, we are sharing in the ultimate loneliness. And yet, he says that he would not abide like that. He would spring up in resurrection and bring forth much fruit. And yet, all through John and elsewhere, what is the fruit that he brings forth? It is the fruit in us. 
the fruit of the Spirit, as it is seen in you and me. And what is the motivation for that? What is the, the power that makes that possible? How can you and I be spiritual people and bring forth love and patience and kindness and gentleness uh, and the fruits of the Spirit? It's because he died alone and resurrected. And that is just what we're here to celebrate. In other words, there is a power in his death and resurrection. In some ways it's referred to in John as the Holy Spirit. But practically, how does that power, that potential power in human life work? It works through doing what we're doing right now, which is by reflecting upon him there and being motivated as inevitably and as a natural process we will be if we meditate properly to go forth, like Isaiah, and be moved to action, to be moved to actual change in personality because he died alone and rose again.